Hey, hey. Hey, what's going on? Uh, nothing much. You know, I just got done with a four-mile walk. Congratulations. Yeah, no, it's great. I'm trying to really hit it hard on Fridays uh, because I don't, you know, I take it easy on the weekends, but yeah. <laughs> the weekends <laughs> are for sports, drinking, and movies, Jeff. That's what they're, that's what they're for. That's, that is correct. Are you going to, uh, now I know you're going to Five Nights at Freddy's tonight. Yes, sir. Very, very excited. And I know you're relieved that you did not get, have to get drugged to the theater to see that movie for well, the purposes my, of our podcast. I was going to say, my weekend movie is Killers of the Flower Moon. So. Ooh, going to have a little Scorsese. Yes, okay. four, right. four, four hours worth. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, good luck with that. I, I, I do hope to see that uh, at some point. Obviously, um, this one was a little bit heavier on the radar due to the family. Sure. Um, even though, you know, I was playing devil's advocate last night. You'll appreciate this. Okay. We we're driving. We we're driving home from a band thing for her. And um, and they were all, you know, both she and Dana were talking about how excited they are, you know, to see the movie. And I said, hey, well, you know, it drops on Peacock tonight. Like mm-hmm. we could watch it tonight. And they're like, What? No, why would we want to do that? No, this is a movie that we want to go see in the movie theaters. I'm like, why? Okay. Why can't we just watch it on Peacock in the privacy of our home and comfort of our home? Uh, and they were like, <laughs> it just got really staunch. And then finally Zoe figures it out and she goes, Dad, come on. Like, you're the one person. Why are you arguing against someone not going to the movie theater? Like, when I'm like, ah, you have figured out the devil's advocate. There you technique. go. Of course, I would love to go to the movie theater. I always want to go to the movie theater. Yeah, especially um, horror movies. It's full audience opening night. I uh yeah, I, Zoe was telling me that there's like been some socials in terms of the uh directions that the fan base is supposed to follow during the movie, so whenever they hear certain lines of dialogue, they're supposed to say certain things and uh, oh, I, so uh, yeah, I'm 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 going to be in for this kind of uh generation um I don't even know if I could even call them Gen Z, but I guess that's what they are. Um, this um, this group of generational kids that this is going to be like their Rocky Horror, you know, like they're ready. I was to, just about to. They're ready to was, participate. Yeah, yeah, I was just about to ask you. It's just like, what's with the Rocky Horror angle? I mean, this is a, based on a video yeah, game. Yeah. So. Well, yes. Um, you know, uh, um, early 2010s. And of course, you know, it appeals to people like me and you, I guess, on some level, because we grew up with showbiz pizza and Chuck E. Cheese pizza. You know, we grew up with those kinds of friends. And uh, it's kind of cool to think about them as being abandoned and haunted and having some sort of like disturbing, violent lore attached to them. Uh, So um, the funny thing to me about it is that over time, there's been so much of a mythology and a universe and a lore that's been built around, I mean, books and comics and video games and, and fan fiction and headcanon and all this stuff. Whew, it is, you know, it is definitely taken a generation by storm. And I think appropriately fits into where we're going to go today, which is don't we love our monsters? Yes. Don't yes. we love our monsters? Yeah. Um, you know, so all of the Freddie plushies, all of the Funko pops, you know, all of, as centered to this moment, thank you, uh, B House, for um, you know finally getting a script Sponsor off the ground. Us. But that's listen, audience, don't sleep on Willy's Wonderland. Oh, the Nicolas sleep Cage film. Yes, now that was the script that was originally slated to be a Freddy's movie, and it got kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of shelved basically, and uh, they went off and made it, you know, in 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 their own way. Uh, and don't sleep on it. That's a fun little film. Okay. All right. Little little recommendation early out of the gate. So cool. Uh, we are Lonely PhDs. I'm Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. He's Dr. Joseph Watson. Today, as we mentioned, this is our monster movie special, the misunderstood, the sympathetic, the empathetic uh, uh, monster film. Uh, uh, on the show today, we are talking about Nightbreed, the director's cut, 1990, from writer-director uh, Raconteur. Clive Barker, uh, one of my favorite writers actually growing up, with along with Stephen King. I'm happy to talk a little bit about that. Uh, and also we're going to be looking at Swamp Thing, uh, 1982 from Wes Craven. Uh, do you want to start or do you want me to, to volley up first here? You go first today. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to uh, – I want to talk about Swamp Thing then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um 
1982 Wes Craven. Um, the, the most surprising thing about this film, well, well, number one, this was, of course, at a time that, you know, comic book adaptations were not uh, quite what they are today. I think that's what I, I know. What? I People didn't want to produce comic books. What? <laughs> and and for all of the low budget television uh, feelings you get from watching this film, um, you know, because it looks like a made for TV movie and, and and very much. You remember the old Spider Man television no movie? He had zero money. But I know. Yeah, yeah, I, know no, but I, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, yeah. It, it it gave me like that same feeling, especially like when they do like the uh, 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 the uh, uh, comic book transitions. Uh, the editing transitions, like the, the the swipes and the the little curtain and and the whites you know, and the yeah. and, mm-hmm. and the things yep. like that gave me gave me specific feels, you know, for that. Um, one thing I think that's misunderstood about this movie, like right off the bat, is that like this is Adrian Barbeau's movie. You Love know? Adrian Barbeau. Yes, Adrian Barbeau is our is our is is our uh, uh, female protagonist. I mean, this is mm-hmm. her film, uh, and. For those of you who don't know, I guess it'd be easier for me to do this to give you a quick recap. Maggie, Maggie. Maggie. Uh, uh, this is basically this starts out as not really a mad scientist premise, but a a rogue scientist premise who's mm-hmm. trying to you know change things for the better. Uh, and then we have another evil competing scientist who doesn't like it so much and wants the formula for himself uh, and ends up destroying our good scientist by the name of Alec Holland, uh, who launches himself into the swamp and comes back as the swamp thing, although they never really name it, do they? I mean, that's sort of just what the comic book was called. Yeah, right? like the creature yeah. or the the thing right. or it's just, a, yeah, it's never officially called that, right? It's never officially called that. Um for those of you who don't know, this was a DC comic uh, that started out in the 70s. Uh, basically, you remember DC? Do you think our audience remembers DC, Jeff, when DC was still relevant? And or, cool? or maybe they'll remember it in three years when they try to <laughs> reboot everything again. Yeah. <laughs> because I believe there is a Swamp Thing movie on the on the docket. If I was reading everything this week correctly... I believe there is. I know that yeah. they had rebooted the television show, uh, which I did not get a chance to see, but you did. Um, and you gave it good marks. I loved that TV series and it was canceled way too prematurely. And um, there's a strong amount of fan base support that is behind me on this. Um, mm-hmm. I really wished that they had kept that storyline going. It was it was really good, Jeff, and it paid very very strong homage to alan moore's like series mm-hmm. um in terms of its visuals and narrative components um it was definitely headed in, more in that direction um very well, very those, good i was gonna say for those who don't know the swamp thing didn't get its real cultural legs until alan the writer alan moore who also wrote watchmen and a billion other things that have been adapted which he can't stand um <laughs> uh uh certainly shaped a lot of creativity and storytelling in the comics medium with this. Um, you you came around to it a little bit later, didn't you? When, well, when... I came around to it a hundred percent because of you. You, uh, I don't remember when, but it was you know it was a while back. But you were you know you were like, hey, uh, you know I don't recommend comic series very often to you because you know you know whatever. And he said, but this this run that Alan Moore is doing a Swamp Thing, you were like, I think you'll really you really get into this right yeah. uh and i did yeah soaked it up um uh, still have um still have those on my shelf um because they were they were really good jeff because they really sort of delved into the monsters psychology the monsters mm-hmm. um potential right the monster particularly how the um hybridity of the sort of um human with nature like how interconnected those Mm-hmm. um elements can be and i think you know certainly alan moore goes like much further than the movie right but i mean i mean that's sort of the underlying one of the underlying subtexts in the in the film is our relationship to nature and i think that was one of the things that really was cool about what alan moore did um well i, I thought i thought it was interesting that the that the filmmakers here decide early on when we have alec holland 
uh, meeting our Adrian Barbeau character, it's very important that immediately it establishes the beauty of the swamp, mm-hmm. you know, in, in saying that, like, what you're getting at is just like, mm-hmm. he, he says something and it's in Alec Collins played by the great Ray Wise uh, in a, in an early film, uh, a film role. Uh, you know, he says something along the lines of just like, you know, if you could only see more into what is actually grown here can be beneficial, like we could do so much and so much more. And that's something that feeds into Alan Moore's uh, interpretation of it when, of course, he takes it to a whole cosmic level. Right. <laughs> I mean, there's right. there's even the trip and remember the trip and uh, uh, issue where they eat the tuber. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Take a psychedelic journey, um, which would have been great here um unfortunately yeah. it, it didn't happen um but there's a lot of potential for that franchise you know there's a lot of really yeah. good source material that they could pull from you know so i hope if they are rebooting it that they do it smartly you know i really do because there's a lot of great stuff that they could mine you know and yeah. pull from. well i, I let, let's 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 so let's look at this particular film you know, and in, in, no, he didn't have a lot of money and it was independent. Basically, this is an independent film uh, and it's a uh, 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 the United Artist uh, and Embassy Pictures in a joint release who were very much <laughs> into before, you know, were, were, were very independent uh, minded companies. Um, what what did you think about as far as the context of. Craven's coming out of the independent horror, you know, in suspense seems like a very strange choice. But I mean, I I was thinking a lot along the lines of how everyone said it was Ang Lee made a weird choice when he did Hulk, you know, coming off of the movies that he came off of. I think it's just something that appeals to to the 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 teenager or the or the adolescent that were reading these comics you know obviously Wes Craven was a fan Angley was a fan of Hulk I mean what do you what do you think I mean sort of precipitates this well it's- I think I think it's a I think that um in, in particularly in Wes Craven's case um you know master's degree in psychology um you know was was someone who really was invested in the concept of the other and the monstrous and what we consider to be monstrous. And I think that you look at his body of work as a whole, Wes Craven's, and you see he was always exploring that, right? Like what are the limitations of the monster? What are the aesthetic beauty that exists in the monster? Is there anything in the monster, um, you know, that, uh, that can appeal to us. Um, and, And I think all horror directors have some sort of strong affection for their, for their monsters um, and feel a little bit of empathy and, and sympathy for them on some level. Um, now that's a whole other can of worms. And, you know, we, there's a long hole that we could go down and in, in talking about that. But I think in this particular case, maybe early on, you know, in the eighties, it was like, why is Wes Craven, you know, doing this kind of sci-fi uh, horror uh, crossover film um but come back to that idea of the monster and the exploration of the psychology of the monster um and the monstrous that is potential both within us and without outside of us mm-hmm. you know this seems to be material that's right up his alley um and and I, I i i i just i still have such strong affection for this movie i know that it that it has become sort of our uh part of our generations roger corman canon in a way right like Mm -hmm. it's these are the films that are the b movies i guess of the yesteryear of 40 years ago but these are the ones that you know like we learned in the 80s and 90s like oh there's these great like cult classics from roger corman and and those still exist but like this was swamp thing i feel like is one of those that's uniquely our generations right like this is one of our b movie character monsters and so um uh i think in that sense it might have been seen as even an opportunity for Craven, right? Because it could have taken off and been a franchise. I don't, you know, I don't know, but it was so experimental, I think, for its day because this is still right around the time of, and we've talked about this before with Dragon Slayer and some other films in the early eighties. Yeah, really trying to 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 throw darts at the wall and figure out what what kind of mix of things is going to work with a young audience, right? But this is this is a strange thing though this film is is it's really an homage isn't mm-hmm. it you know to those a, movies 
to to, to, the to those Roger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, not only that, but to the universal rubber suit horror. Uh, oh, absolutely. You, know, yeah. you know, and 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 we have to talk about the suit for just a second, um, <laughs> because I think you either are going to take the ride or you're not, um, because they don't try to hide it, and that's why I say, is this sort of a a new idea of homage that Craven and them are trying to do by saying that, look, we're not going to hide the fact that this is, <laughs> this is a pretty bad. It's a guy in a suit, right? It's yeah. a guy in a suit. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. Am I, am I thinking too much into the commentary on that? Or was it just strictly, you know, a budget nightmare? <laughs> probably was a level. I mean, I can imagine that it was probably a level of acceptance, right? There's, Certain limitations of the technologies in 1982, certainly limitations of the finances in 1982, and then you sort of come to this acceptance of, well, Howard Hawks was doing it in 1950 with, you know, just a dude in a suit. And so it's really just about how we can frame it, shoot it, how we present it. Um, That's what's going to sell it or not. Um, Well, I mean, look at the popularity of something like the Godzilla franchise. Right, right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't I don't. I think it's just one of those things where you go, yeah, it'd be cool to do X or Y, but without Z, then that's not going to be possible. So we're going to just sort of embrace this kind of historic way that that we've kind of seen these monsters represented. Um, I, it still works for me. I mean, I, I do understand that certain audiences approaching it may need to, like you're saying, just sort of accept that conceit and move on instead of like in a cinema sense way going, the suit just doesn't work for me. It's so cheesy. Like what? It's like, yes, but let's, you know, why don't we listen to the dialogue or why don't we listen to, you know, what, how is it composed? You know, those kinds of things, you know, become, uh, should become your focus if you're way over-focused on the suit. But I was going to say the, 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 the film succeeds because it never tries to be anything else than other than what it is. And right. that is, again, like you're saying, like the charm of a Roger Corman film is that it never is trying to be anything else. That's right. You know, That's right. it is, it is, it is fast food entertainment and there, there is substance to it, but it's, mm-hmm. it's mainly for entertainment purposes. That's right. That's right. You know? That's right. Um, it's uh, um, it, and and it 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 works. I mean, in terms of the formulas, right? I mean, Adrian Barbeau is your beautiful protagonist, right? Um, uh, and uh, how great is Louis Jordan as the villain? As the <laughs> as villain, Arcane, Anton Arcane. In this movie, I mean, he's so good. Now, in the TV series, they reboot that character, and he's a Louisiana sugar plantation owner. Yes. So it's a very different interpretation, but, but, but he's, so, he just eats the scenery in this movie. Right. I mean, it'd been a while. Since I mean, I that, that fantastic rubber mask reveal very early on. I mean, it's just, it's just so fantastic how they staged that. And he had been right around the same time. He had been in the James Bond movie Octopussy yes. um, as the villain as well. And so he was like a, you know, he was there for a second as like your go-to villain, like in a movie, kind of like your Hans Gruber or your, you know, your Alan Rickman kind of character. Like mm-hmm. he just had this ooze to his voice in this movie. That's just so funny. Yeah. Uh, it makes me think too of like uh early Mads Mikkelsen. Yeah. Would, you know, sort of try to keep him in that box. But as we've come to know about Mads, he's just, he's just too you, big for the box, man. You, you cannot contain me unless you send me to Alabama. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Indiana Jones. Um, I, I want to talk for a moment too about again what makes this film stand out is that we have a we have a strong heroine, and then we have a sidekick uh, in this film. the 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 kid is so great. I I mean, I, I was trying to find out where they found him. And, and I couldn't get a lot of information on it in my reading this week. Do you know where they found the, the, the Jude I don't, character? I don't. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, it was, he's just so incredible and natural and they just gel immediately. And you just don't see that kind of strange chemistry that often. Yeah. Reggie bats. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he has no other credits. He had to have been a local. <laughs> so he probably was 
a local uh, that they picked up in a casting call, um, which is really cool, you know. But uh, yeah, where is that kid? And could would he sit down with us for an interview on a podcast and talk to us about his, <laughs> his experiences working on Swamp Thing forty years ago? Uh, no, I mean, I, I, that's he is great. It's the look. He has such a great look. Um, and you're right. Their chemistry, you know, when they're riding through on those little pyros and stuff, you know, I mean, he understands that sort of, it kind of reminds me a little bit of, uh, Flaherty's Louisiana story, you know, where there's like the little kid who's like watching the old Derek's like float down the swamp. Um, but it just, this, that sort of local short round kind of character that understands Mm -hmm. how local things work. Um, love it. Love it. Yeah. This is a nice little accent touch. Well, we don't, and also, you know, we how how often on screen do we see a a a, a white female and a, a African American sidekick? I mean, it's it's just not. That's that, a little bit of a flip. Yeah. yeah, you you didn't see it that often in the eighties for sure. Yeah, and also with her character again, I I can't stress this enough about how this is her movie. You know, she's just she's just taking shit from nobody. Uh, you know, she is strong right out of the gate. And Adrian Barbeau, you know, was, you know, is iconic. I mean, she's coming out of a uh, very strong lead in The Fog and also in Escape from New York. I mean, she was married to Carpenter for a while. Um, uh, a Creep Show was another one. Um, you know, she was popping up uh as uh, recurringly as strong female um a strong female character leads um uh, in some of these movies um so uh yeah i think i guess it's just sort of like continuing that um that pattern um she does have this reputation even now uh you know that she's still making appearances at horror conventions and stuff mm-hmm. um people still flock to her you know i mean they still they want to interact with her they want to engage with her because there's some iconic role from this period that we're talking about that that has spoken to people and still resonates with people so it's definitely a testament to her on-screen power and off-screen um connectedness and presence to her to her fans Mm -hmm. you know that that obviously resonated with the work i if you're sitting out there going really guys you're talking about swamp thing and so i i mean i'm <laughs> we're not making these things up i mean you no, i mean you, you it's can, all there on the screen yeah yeah i mean you can find stuff as well where people have written quite you know romantically and and critically sound about this particular era of cinema and um and she quite often gets mentioned in the same frame as say sigourney weaver or you know mm-hmm. one of these other strong actresses in the 80s who were kind of sneaky playing these uh uh, I guess sneaky is the wrong word, but I, I yeah. guess it felt subversive in the eighties, right? It was, oh wow, a woman is the you know, I mean, but it's the lead. Uh, I know, know, right? I know it's so like it sounds so awful to say that, but it's true. When you were, you know, when you were our age, and I told the kids last week in class, I said, because uh, they're you know they always do the age game guess where mm-hmm. they're trying to like figure out where your positioning is, and I just said, okay, so you know, Stranger Things season three. And they were like, yeah. And I was like, Dustin and Mike and all them. I'm like, that was me. Yeah. I was like, I was right at about their age in that time frame. And you could see their faces were so, you know, and I'm like, yeah. So imagine Dustin seeing Linda Hamilton kick ass in Terminator 2 or Sigourney Weaver in Aliens. You know, we thought that was the coolest shit we'd ever seen right and it really validated and opened our minds to you know the possibilities um you know of of what what we're not seeing right and what we want to see more of right yeah and now now with that said uh, the one the one thing i will point out about the film that i had forgotten that, that shocked me was the uh uh the nude bathing uh that that occurred and i'm just like pg <laughs> Again, you know, they didn't have a problem showing a, a woman's top area uh, and going, you know what? It's good for everybody. Yeah, you know, I didn't really I, I've seen it so many times as bad as that sounds. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't really it didn't really it didn't really stand out to me. Um, mm-hmm. The one in Dragon Slayer from last season, like that one surprised me more than than this, than one, this yeah. one did, um, because there's another PG, right, like film mm-hmm. that um, that had that. Um, I mean, obviously, Adrian Barbeau was a little famous for her 
physical appearance. And so, um, you know, I think there's some of that is, is, is at play as well. Did it feel gratuitous? Like, I mean, yeah. 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 (laughs) I mean, it is completely gratuitous. Yeah. So, so, the, so we should mark it then as you know yeah. an example of '80s excess and yes. where you know it's just just not really needed. Yeah. Um, and I don't I don't know if that was Craven's call or not. I, I, yeah. I'm thinking, and, and you know, it, it feels like that was a production company's call. Um, to 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 have that, I don't. I just because based on his body of work, I don't see him as. And I don't mean to use the word exploitative, but in 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 that ballpark, if that makes sense. Yeah, he's never struck me as being someone as a director who would go for something cheap and 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 perverse um, without, you know, perversity without there being some sort of motivation in the, you know, in the script or the or the characters, you know, Freddy Krueger is pretty perverted. Right. But it's it's, oh. you know, it's well, all I mean, it's last all, house on the left. I mean, right. And and hills have eyes. Right. I mean, it's it's you know, those are like warm cups of coffee in the morning. But like you 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 it's contextualized within the story. And so, you know, I mean, it's certainly when he first started out, he was accused of that. Right. Like with last house on the left, it was it was oh my God, Wes Craven is this, you know, perverse, perverter of violence and he fetishizes all of this, you know, and his response was always wonderful. I thought it was like, are you watching the news? Like, do you see this Vietnam footage? Like, do you see the stuff that we're just seeing like nightly, like on the news, right? Like, why am I the, you know, the, uh, the, the perverter of violence? Why am I the one who's doing that? Um, when our own government is X and Y, you know, so is political, I guess, for him at mm-hmm. first, but no, I've never thought of him as being someone who goes for that cheap, uh, knock. Um, but I guess Jeff, you know, that is something that we should just circle with the eighties and it just, you know, especially the early to mid eighties, you know, if you were watching a specific kind of genre movie, in that time frame, there's probably going to be a bare chest, a bare back, a shower scene. Uh, There's some, it was, it was almost, well, I mean, I I think it wasn't almost, it was an expected norm that you would see. It was normalized. And, you know, however toxic that is, that is the, the, the reality of what, you know, the dusties and the mics and the stranger things kids like all the, it's what we grew up with um it is what you know we grew up with. uh um and so it was that you know the 80s was about that excess you know that excess mm-hmm. going overboard having too much of this or that you know and yes. so you see that reflected in the movies you know so it's a great point let's check it let's mark it absolutely and and yeah. what a, what a, i want one more thing here with swamp thing oh, is yeah, is yeah, that no, um is that you know craven was desperate to show that he could direct other genres. Um, this comes at an interesting time for him, uh, you know, to prove that he can step outside of the box, outside the box that, that people that the industry had put him in as as horror or tagged him as horror director. Right. This is the same thing we see with Carpenter also, mm-hmm. um, you know, who who's desperate to break from it. You know, Starman's right around the corner, um, and you know he 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 just. I was seeing, I saw a blurb the other day about how Carpenter just doesn't give a shit anymore about you want to call him a horror director. That's fine with him. Like he doesn't, you know, consider himself that Um, if, if we're we're playing a hypothetical game here, if Swamp Thing is a hit, you know, do you, do you think Craven's trajectory stays the same or does he jump to something like a, 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 what was the music from the heart? You know what I mean? Like it, it, it takes a long time to get there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I, I mean, maybe if Swamp, cause we're right on the cusp of uh nightmare on Elm street mm-hmm. for him. And that of course would be his, his big staple um, where he would have the big hit and have the finances and the money to do, to certainly at that point go off and do other genre films. I mean, I, I think you really have to look at his career closely because movies like Serpent in the Rainbow, uh, People Under the Stairs, like they're still horror, but they are really, really sharp social commentaries. Um, And they're really, in many respects, more social commentary than they are horror. Um, Mm -hmm. So he's got some, some sleepers that he sort of snuck in there that demonstrate 
his range and his possibility. For example, um, just the other day in the context of Dracula, we were talking about Eddie Murphy in Vampire in Brooklyn and how that was a Wes Craven vehicle and a very de- big departure for Eddie Murphy, you know, um, and uh, and that's a really interesting movie. And it's a very interesting role for him. And that go and you could see Wes at that point, you know, very much working against type and genre yeah. expectation. Um much to the dismay of audience goers in the mid nineties. Right. So it's like, okay, fine. I'll, I'll go do scream, you know? Uh, Mm -hmm. But um, um, so I think that's probably one of the, the narratives that stuck with him for the rest of his career, you know, as well as Carpenter, right? Like being labeled X, but having done such really quality work in a lot of different areas that really cross lines in and out of horror in some very sophisticated ways. Um, I miss Wes Craven a lot. You know, he, 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 uh, he we lost away him too soon. Yeah. Yeah. We lost him, uh, way too early. Um, uh, and, uh, but he left us a, a tremendous body of work. And, um, I think you continue to see his, his influence, um, you know, on the genre. I mean, I, I was just explaining about, uh, the other day about Wes Craven's new nightmare. Mm-hmm his entry in the mid nineties, right. That really sort of paved the way for this self-reflexive meta horror movement that really exploded. Um, you know, his ability to just look at the material. I mean, how can you, after seven something Freddy films, look at it and go, Oh my God, I'm so bored with this. What can we do with this? How can we, mm-hmm. how can we twist it? How can we make it something? Let's think outside of the box. Right. And then he comes out with that just so smart. Right. And it just, allowed the whole genre to turn a corner and move in a different direction um with that that idea of of the postmodern self-reflexive meta horror um narrative you know um just so much fun so well, i mean yeah. even look look here in swamp thing i mean we're he's dealing with the theme the major theme of do you weaponize science or do you do you you know altruistically take science for what it's worth and that is for some sort of betterment you know and, and then making the commentary even larger um by saying you know it's america and this is how american values are sort of you know one side and the other i mean that's oh, yeah. just, it's not a stretch to say that once you sort of sit with swamp thing and you know you think about it i think i think that message is pretty pretty clear mm-hmm no, I think it's true. Um, I think there's social commentary uh, that's in that's underneath most of his uh, most of his work. Absolutely. Well, we're uh, <laughs> we're lonely PhDs. I'm Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. He's Dr. Joseph Watson. We just got done talking about Swamp Thing from 1982 and 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 Wes Craven. Uh, moving on to hang on, we're gonna the... have to we're gonna have to pause. I'm sorry. I gotta oh. let this. I gotta let this guy out of the room. He's okay. Sorry, last time he slept through the whole thing, but this time he yeah. got down and wanted to participate. And I'm like, no, buddy, I'm sorry, it's not, it's not going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> on my leg and everything. Yeah, yep. Wants it, wants it, wants it all. Ugh. Um, so we're 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 taking a shift here. This is probably one of our most cultish films that we've ever covered uh, on the show. Um, I mean, it's hard to beat, you know, the fish that saved Pittsburgh, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, we're talking about Nightbreed, uh, and more specifically, we're talking about a, a the director's cut of the film. Uh, the film came out originally in 1990. It is written and directed by uh, Clive Barker. Uh, so, what can you tell us about Nightbreed? Well, let's. I think bef- <laughs> let's start with Clive Barker first, sure. shall we? Mm-hmm. Um, because I really came to Clive Barker uh, largely. Uh, I, I think Hellraiser was really in the late eighties, right? Yes. Was the first time that that I that he became a name that I was paying attention to, right? Because yeah. I think Stephen King had kind of dominated, you know, the market for so long. Clive Barker was like, I think there was another one that was writing a lot of prolific, like Dean Koontz or some Dean whatever Koontz. his name, right? Yeah, there was there were some popular fiction writers, but Clive Barker was a little more on the fringe, right? He was not quite mm-hmm. so. So um, um, dime store novelish as Dean Koontz was, but like his expo- his novels, Jeff, I mean, once again, I, I credit you for really exposing me to, and I wrote some of these down because, I, you know, I don't read fiction very much, 
but Clive Barker is one of those writers that I explored more of largely because of what you, um, where you took me, right? Like where you, you were like, Hey, you should check this out. Mm -hmm. You should check that out. Did you, Um, you started with thief of always. I did. Thief of always was the first, um, you, um, then it was at the great and secret show. That's, that's some heavy stuff right there, which is right. (laughs) Um, and then I, eventually I did make it back to, um, weave world, which Mm -hmm. is, um, you know, uh, um, uh, another one that, 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 um, that was part of the canon. And I, I, so his work, I mean, you want to talk about somebody, especially with Nightbreed, who really wants to delve into the idea of monsters even being the good guys, right? Um, uh, which is what's so cool, I think, about Nightbreed, um, is how it inverts that narrative. So, uh, yeah, so let's talk about the plot first, and then we'll get that out of the way, and then we'll kind of work through. I want to I want to talk about three specific things that I think can guide our whole discussion. Okay. Um, so a troubled young man named Boone um played by the ever so uh 80s iconic uh craig schaefer great uh, it, it, yeah <laughs> and a great voice too man he just yeah. has a really iconic uh so a uh, boone is drawn by his dreams to a mythical place called midian where a variety of friendly monsters are hiding from humanity um in the in the meantime uh boone is having as along with everybody else is having to deal with a sadistic serial killer who is looking and searching for a patsy uh to serve as uh the alibi for him getting away with all of these killings um you know i don't think i'm giving too much away here i think it's pretty obvious when you're watching the movie that boone is going to eventually um you know, discover mm-hmm. that the uh, the the bad person is really the therapist, right? Who's supposed yes. to be the person who's helping you? But we know that Doctor Decker, who is deliciously played by famous director David Cronenberg, um, just delish uh, in this movie. Um, uh, Decker is actually the horrific monster in the mask um, that is masking in a different way uh, in public. Um, and setting up Boone to be the fall person for his uh, for his sadistic acts. And let me tell you, Decker is nasty. He is a nasty dude. So Nightbreed, um, uh, you know, this, the story kind of unfolds with, you know, there's a battle coming at some point uh, and it's going to be Midian folks that have to stand up and sort of uh, keep the boundaries clear between the living and the dead. Um, or the non-living, we should say. Yes. Um, so that's kind of where Nightbreed takes off. Now, I think the movie, we should start first, Jeff, with the whole reason why Nightbreed came up at discussion, which is that uh, there was a new release, two-disc Blu-ray, a couple of years ago that came out that I recently purchased. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that there was a director's cut of this movie. So I did some- not either. Yeah. yeah, somehow I missed all of this history. So... Um, so I think we should start first by talking about director's cuts, period, and where that kind of took off, and then where Nightbreed, or specifically the Cabal cut, as it was known in the early 2010s, um, where that sort of uh, developed and how it eventually became this this director's cut version that's available now. So, well, it was you I, know direct director's yeah. cuts are are marketing tools. I mean they're they're made to move home home video units and that's really where they gestated you know it's it's as much as we would love to think that it was always artistically driven uh that just wasn't so uh especially with movies that did not make their money um you know you could put out a a director's cut of a film and you know try to regain whatever capital uh uh, that a studio could i mean is that fair i mean that's i think that's fair to say (laughs) so so you're gonna love this so when i did a little bit of a deep dive on it (laughs) obviously as you're as you're as you're saying the the rise and the introduction of the home video market right like mm-hmm. at that and so that opened the way right for this to be a fiscally sound option for certain studios and things to like to make more money but the person who really spearheaded this 
was somebody that you just love, right? And it's Francis Coppola, right? The the, <laughs> the, the one who wanted to 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 sort of revisit Apocalypse Now, right? And then mm-hmm. not long after that, it, it is pr- probably the most iconic example of director's cuts when it first came out and started to become a thing is Ridley Scott's Blade Runner as well, right? With yes. the multiple versions of that and how... The director's cut of Blade Runner really swayed a lot of fans and said, you know, this is really the true version, even though it's not the theatrical version. So um, so it really raises. you know, And so George Lucas follows as well. Like and then that's, you know, but really Francis Coppola is the one to sort of point to and say this guy kind of started doing this junk uh, and and got us into this mess. But yeah, at, at the end of the day. Yeah, it's a it's a, um, it's a well, I mean, can you think of any books? Jeff that have been re-released with additional content that got cut out by a only an only, editor at you know <laughs> like the the major one is the stand you know they okay. that they released the unabridged version of that eventually so but I mean yeah no I mean movies have a very are a very special uh, 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 a format you know that they can that they they are allowed to do this to give you alternate endings alternate viewpoints alternate uh, well alternate anything just as you're describing i mean i mean what was there there was four versions of blade runner something something there's so many versions of it Uh, or or even the brazil box set you know where it presented us with three or four versions of it so it's it depends on to me at least how i view director's cuts is that i don't think they're dirty words uh i i think that they are they offer an interesting opportunity to see the film in a different way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that's where i stand with directors so the genesis of that then as we come to clive bar i mean no i i i agree um so the the genesis of this interest is of course we've seen in the past how directors cuts can be indeed vast improvements over what we saw in the theaters. Mm-hmm. So you get drawn in. So as soon as I saw there's direct director's cut, my eyebrows just, whoa, this is going to be awesome, right? Um, so specifically with Nightbreed, mm-hmm. um, Clive Barker has been very open about the fact that he was very disappointed at how audiences were very confused by the theatrical cut of Nightbreed. There wasn't enough connective tissue between the characters. Some things weren't realized or made obvious very early on just because of the studio demands that he had to go through in terms of cutting it down. He uh, he did not think that the studios understood the movie, which is not the first time we've heard this right <laughs> but he he just kept reiterating to them that the monsters the monstrous and the monsters are the good guys in this movie and and the studio producers could not wrap their heads around that they're like the audience is not going to like that they're not going to accept that the monsters need to be evil they need to be you know and he was like but the monsters are us they're the you know they're the you know and they just couldn't they're the flash. rednecks with guns right 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 <laughs> Right. I mean, I'm so, sorry. That's that's no major spoiler here. It's it's literally rednecks with guns. Yeah, it's a like, vigilante mob, right? Um, yeah. uh, and so, uh, and it's sort of Frankensteinish, you know, in sort of its you know lynch mob mentality, right? Beauty and the Beast esque, right? In in that way. Um, but uh, so the so this director's cut really generated by the fans of this movie and the fans of Barker, uh growing up now keep in mind this was 1990 so it wasn't until like 2010s when you started having youtubers cutting and recutting movies and posting them online so barker himself came upon upon this cabal cut online and thought it was a obviously thought it was great and was very touched and was like oh my gosh my movie from 20 years ago is you know is resonating still with audiences you know um and so instead of trying to pursue copyright on these folks, um, they merged a partnership and started to work with uh, a distributor on putting these pieces back together. And I'll, I'll tell you the narrative about how they went back and found this footage because it had been shipped and splintered. And I mean, it was like in 15 different places from what they were describing, like, uh, but they were still able to find it, even if it was still on like a VHS tape, right? They were able to locate it um, and, and pull it all back together. And Mm -hmm. in total, I think they said it was like around 40 minutes of stuff. 
and they only put around 30 minutes back in. So they still didn't put everything in. It was still, there were still editing choices being made in the cut. Um, but I think the general consensus is that the director's cut is, is better, uh, that it's uh, more linear, um, that it actually has, I enjoyed the exposure way more to the actual monsters in Midian that were in yes. the director's cut version. Um, the fact that we were able to spend more time with them and get an understanding of their character and their motivation um, uh, definitely helped in terms of establishing them as the good guys. Um, uh, because at, the theatrical version left you with, well, I'm not really sure if they're good or not until the very end. And then you're sort of left wondering, well, wait a minute, did I just get gypped because the monsters I thought mm -hmm. were kind of questionable up to this, right? But when they save Boone and they take care of Boone and they, you know, I mean, when that happens, you, you, you sort of get brought in in this director's cut in different ways because you're able to spend some more time in Midian and get right. some more sort of world building. Uh, and that's what I think is the strongest point about the director's cut um, is uh, is just the the character connective tissue that's yeah. in it. And Did you, yeah, what do you oh, think? No, no, yeah, yeah. And I yeah. want to be clear here with everyone that uh, this was not a low budget affair like Swamp Thing. This was a swing for the fences. This has a Danny Elfman score, conceptual art by Ralph McQuarrie. Yes, that Ralph McQuarrie, Star Wars, Ralph McQuarrie. Um, intricate makeup and design, uh, probably probably i think at the time probably one of the largest latex shows that had been put on film uh if, if i'm not mistaken is that fair it was it's is what you're seeing here is the progression of people in suits right right but it's, right, right. But it's yeah. prosthetics mm -hmm. and it's yeah yeah i mean and it's remarkable the makeup and and, and visual effects work uh yeah. in the film are remarkable for for their day it's really remarkable yeah the monster designs, right? Just, mm -hmm. just from a conceptual standpoint, are just beautiful. I mean, I and I know we don't say that very much about monsters, right? But these monsters, to me, are beautiful. They're beautifully designed. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so, so again, not not a. This was not. This is such an ambitious film uh, that also leaves the door open for another film. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that was the thing that that took me back because I hadn't seen the film in so long. Um, when I was watching the end of it, I said, oh my God, they're opening the door. That's right. They're opening the door for another movie. There's This was supposed to be a much bigger, even bigger uh, 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 canvas that he would, again, the ambition of this film. Unfortunately, the ambition, even with the director's cut, I would say, I err to say, uh, uh, the ambition is is far greater than the resources. Even even with a good mid-size budget. No, I agree. I mean, this would have to be one of those things where Shutter or mm -hmm. some 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 uh, company that has that kind of resources uh, gets behind it and really sort of does a a rings of power kind of Amazon investment in a universe building series mm -hmm. to really do it justice especially um you know with today's technologies i get really excited about what you could create with nightbreed right but um but there's a um i don't know why it hasn't you know it hasn't materialized um i i don't know if clive barker outside of hellraiser is is much of a household name i mean is mm -hmm. that i mean i, I hate I to, think that's I hate fair to, to say yeah i mean especially in movies right um yeah. um uh that hellraiser is definitely the franchise that you know that kept yeah. him going um but well, this only, one, I mean, this he, one he could have been a good one and great and secret show as well would be oh, oh yeah a great I mean, series you know i mean he only goes on to write and direct one more film which is lord of illusions which also got the director's cut uh, uh treatment as well he just to, he he is his own misunderstood uh, uh, monster as, as, you know, as, as it would seem. And I, I mean that in the most affectionate way possible because uh, uh, you can't talk about his work without talking about that. This is an, a, a proud out man, mm -hmm. you know, he, in, 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 in the context of his work is very uh, 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 a GLBTQ, you know, it is oh, very, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, 
Hellraiser, for God's sakes, it's the most masochistic thing you're ever probably going to see on screen. I mean, next to a to an actual uh, a pornographic film. I mean, I, and I'm not being facetious when I say that. I mean, it is it is a ride. It is intense. Mm-hmm. Hellraiser is still one of those movies that you know I remember seeing it in the theater. You just couldn't believe what you saw, and like, I was it, just, uh, I, I, yes, it was. It it pushed boundaries. There's no question. Um, and um, and it was uh, bloody and graphic. And oh, it is! It is a nasty little piece it, of work. <laughs> it, it 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 is, and obviously resonated. I mean, you know, there's been like oh, how many of those now? There are mm-hmm. ten or something like that in different movies. And Penhead, the character, of course, is is just an iconic one, just alongside Michael Myers and Freddy and all you know all the others. You see yeah. Penhead on that artwork just as much as uh as the others um and um and it's funny to me because you know pen that's a very different monster <laughs> you got that right like you keep referencing hellraiser folks but have you seen hellraiser do you really know what that that, that character that is, is about you know and yeah. how much it's addressing sexuality and uh, okay all right yeah um well, i mean but but we're addressing sexuality in nightbreed I mean, yes. you know, the 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 Decker character, the David Cronenberg character hates people who have happy or healthy sexual lives. Yeah. Like that's part of his main anger comes mm-hmm. from that. He thinks it's disgusting. He says breeders are disgusting. Yeah. That's 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 what makes David Cronenberg perfect in this role is that like when you look at his body of work about the biological yeah. uh, uh, horrors that 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 his characters encounter um this takes that to that whole other level i mean imagine a serial killer that that hates people that are happy with who they are yeah 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 i, well, I mean essentially it's it's, it's 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 extra delish because david cronenberg who's like the king of body horror right mm-hmm. uh playing the role of this of the serial killer who's also the psychiatrist it plays into all that other stereotype too about people who, you know, like horror movies, right? Like, oh, mm-hmm. they're secretly like serial killers, right? Mm-hmm. When actually the people that I know that love horror are the most like mentally adjusted, socially like well adapted people. Uh, that, that you know, because they're able to really talk about the evil and the monsters, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to uh, uh, just instantly demonizing them. But it kind of plays into that stereotype as well because you've got a horror director. What does he do in his private life? Well, he he goes around and kills people. You know, Stephen King's got to be weird. You know, he's got to be a weird guy. You know, and actually these people are really very cool and very, yeah. I mean, at least the ones that I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So, so, so before we get too off track, so what, what is the second point uh, that, that you wish to make about Nightbreed? Where at what where are the limits of what we can do with monsters? Because mm-hmm. Nightbreed for me was one of the first movies that I can remember really caring about these monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, more so than Frankenstein, more so than you know, any of the other classic monsters that I had been exposed to before this. Um, and so my question is, why is that? Was it just like exposure to the right content at the right time in a, in a developmental level to where you're just finally able to empathize with something like that? Or, or is it something specific to Barker's work in this movie? That's where I want to go. I think it's something specific because we, we can look at the fragility of something, uh, a fragility of a society, even if it's a fringe society. I mean, we see that they have children. Uh, in fact, the child is saved right very early on this this introduces us to that you know these aren't just creepy crawlies uh uh who who are out to to undermine humanity i mean no they're they're actually part of a tribe a literal because i mean we have wall paintings for christ's sakes like this is this is reaching back into something bigger than what we understand and all they're trying to do is to preserve a way of life so yeah yeah you know barker does a really good magic trick with this film. And I think in his films in general, and also in just in his work is that he's trying to show you about the, the, the connectiveness of communities, mm-hmm. the connectedness of, uh, 
tribes, no matter how disturbing it may seem, again, on the surface, to a uh, uh, quote-unquote normal, well-adjusted person who might not you know, might think it is deviant or, devi you know, or, or uh, salacious maybe in some way. That That's what I get, at least. Perfect. No, that's exactly, I couldn't have said it better. I mean, I, I th this most recent revisit, uh, when I was asking myself that question, because, you know, you get it, I got excited about Night because I'm like, oh, I'm going to get to see those monsters again, you know, because there's so many different great designs and so, you know, and you're right. It hit me. It's from the opening credits is when I really because you got the Elfman score going mm -hmm. and you're going through this sort of slow pan of all this sort of storytelling. Right. With the images of on the and so I just went, oh, of course, this is why I loved it in 1990, because it was tribal and it was ancient and it was referencing something indigenous or ancient. Mm -hmm. And that's not what I. I think that's what drew me in in 1990, but I wasn't able to articulate it like I am now, right? That it's that I felt that sort of um, indigenous pull. These the these communities were here first, or they were here like long before, right? There's such an ancient connected past to all of this, right? That well, I mean, even even the no, even the townies know Midian and they completely they keep saying what do you want to mess with those what are those people done to you like right they're right, just right just let, let leave them alone right just right. let them be right right, right. and so they're, it's it, it's such a great commentary on how we marginalize and stigmatize you know those folks that live on the mountain or those folks that live you know out yeah I mean it's just it's one of those barriers and it's because we perceive of them as you know something deviant or something to be destroyed even or contained right mm -hmm. um and uh when in reality there's there's so much beauty there and there's so much like understanding that has yet to occur because you know uh you just haven't taken that that opportunity or there hasn't been that that mm -hmm. chance to see them in that perspective shift way um so yeah that's i, I to me that's those are the things that i'm circling about kind of the meat of mm -hmm. um of of nightbreed and it's it's just that uh those elements of the of the empathetic um monsters um and well, you I, know and it's just so funny that producers in 1990 couldn't get behind that like they just couldn't could not conceive I don't, what do you mean the monsters are the, are, are the good guys you know and i think about something like monsters inc mm -hmm. right where you know, we totally shift that narrative where the monsters that scare you as a little kid are actually part of this whole other mythological universe that they have their own needs. Right. Just mm -hmm. completely asking you to to be empathetic to the monsters and not only that, but by plushies, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you know, like and 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 uh, and movies like Nightbreed, you know. <laughs> get demonized well, I mean, for you know <laughs> well, i mean but we're we're coming out of the era of the anti-hero like the 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 major time in movies of of the quote-unquote anti-hero and also in a lot of television and in other you know other media which i find fascinating because you know by the end of the 80s your terminators your uh, uh all these things you you've got especially in sci-fi and fantasy, um, they're even going to change direction because by the time Terminator 2 comes around, you know, Cameron's wised up and he's just like, well, he's he's not a villain. He's just a misunderstood. I'm going to make him the misunderstood monster. Right, right. right you know, right, I mean, Cameron right. even pivots on it. Right. You know, Barker's ahead of the curve. For, yeah, no, exactly. For, for all yeah, yeah. purposes. You know, he's he's saying that we can use fantasy in this way, you know, because, again, I don't I don't classify this as a horror film. I classify this as a fantasy film. All right. Um, OK. So, I mean, no, well, I, I mean, think that's fair. Think yeah. No, I, I mean, I think it's 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 probably fair enough, Jeff, um, to I've just never said it out loud, but it is. It's a great example of fantasy. Um, it certainly has horror components to it, but I think overall uh the way that it that it ends its narrative conflict right that idea of our relationship to the monsters is very horror in origin but um but that's not to say that fantasy hasn't done those same tropes uh you know um i just think it's i just think it's fair i i, I just don't think i've ever said it out loud that it's that it's <laughs> that it's really more would you say fantasy horror yeah, I'd say yeah. fantasy horror. That's yeah, it's, it's it's not science fiction. 
Yeah, it would definitely, I could definitely see why it had trouble, you know, being put on a video shelf because it, you know, it's just yeah. like, well, where do you put it? <laughs> yeah. Well, the fantasy shelf in the video store, I remember. It was always a mishmash. It, it, um, it only had yeah. like eight to 10 movies on it, right? Because they're yeah. just, everybody just pretty much lumped it either in horror or sci-fi, right? If it was fantasy. Yeah. You maybe had like a few, right? Like Labyrinth or or uh, any, any anything by Ralph Bakshi or right. you know. Um, uh, I was gonna say Beastmaster was probably Beastmaster, right. def- right. definitely, definitely Beastmaster. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, uh, you, you just those hybrids um, struggled, you know. And then you would have like Excalibur and Dragon Slayer and all, you know, all all of those like together. Um, but Swamp Thing. It definitely is more science fiction, right? But mm-hmm. Nightbreed is 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 definitely leans more towards fantasy. Um, yes. Uh, and and I found myself ironically when rewatching, getting really impatient when I was in the real world, and I wanted to get back to Midian, which is really <laughs> <laughs> that says a lot much about more. You. Fe- it does, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, um, you know. Uh, but um, just because uh, it was just this, you know, it was such a world build and, you know, and I was just sort of really fascinated by all of it, especially in the second go around. So no question, no question. So what's your, so, so what is the third point? Well, the third point I wanted to talk about was Danny Elfman. Um, and we've, you know, we've mentioned a little bit about him, but has, his music, his music, dude, and this movie, I mean, it really is a character within itself, right? Can we say that? Uh, can we just say that? I mean, it's yes, it's it's not so much carpeting as it is like drywall in the in the movie, right? I mean, it's well, it's, the use of the use of choral voices in here is very important, yeah. uh, and and very atmospheric, and for the time. This was before we were all very used to Danny Elfman. He had just come off, you know, uh, Beetlejuice and Batman and a Dark Man. In Dark Man, of course. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's 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 right there at the cusp of like full blossomed Elfman, like what we would come to know as his his specific uh, thematics as far as how he crafts a score. You think I. I, I think when I hear Nightbreed, I feel like it's uh, in terms of his work, it's his most like actualized, right? Like everything else mm-hmm. either before Nightbreed feels like it was a lead up to, and then everything after Nightbreed feels like it's just sort of a mashup of mm-hmm. Nightbreed. Oh yeah. He's, I mean, he's, <laughs> that's no disrespect to Danny Elfman. I love his scores. I mean, no, they're no, no. so he's, 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 he has, he, his thematic wheelhouse plays itself out just like every composer does. You know, you're, you're going to hear very similar things, you know, now it, it's, it's unfair to compare him to a John Williams or, you know, someone along those lines, because it's just like, you know, Williams came from, orchestration so you know he's very he you know williams is always challenging himself and a lot of his scores you know elfman does does play it safe i think a lot of times when you listen to subsequent scores in his career and it's, it's just like oh there's that you know there's that you know to to me from a musician standpoint, it's like oh there's that six eight time and that you know it's just like there's very specific things you can pick out about a danny elfman score that sometimes you know i mean i've i remember even jill has watched a movie with me and gone and i would go she goes who's doing the music and i'll go john williams <laughs> like that and she'll go no and i'll go yeah i mean that yeah. that's that different kind of mark is, yeah. is what i'm saying it's very different yeah. yeah yeah well it's true i mean i think williams i think brass and mm-hmm. i and I think uh, Elfman. I think Coral. Like instantly. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, but the, but yeah. But that's not to okay. say that John Williams hasn't done Coral himself. I mean, he has. You know, Duel uh, of the Fates. Duel maybe. of the Fates. Right. <laughs> but um, uh, but um, but yeah. It's there's there's just um. I wanted to point that out because I think this is one of those scores that um that really stands out and it, it marks itself as being such a huge component of making the world building work and making yes. it go and making it so much more emotionally sweeping is, mm-hmm. um, is that score because his score just makes it sound 
so epic and sweeping it's it's that choral probably but it just um it it wraps me in um and i and i just wrote it down as like have to talk about danny elfman you know and his contributions um to to making it work um i mean i you know we mentioned some of the visual effects and 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 makeup artists was there anybody else on the crew that we need to give out credit to you know i mean mm-hmm. uh but elfman is is the one thing that that kind of stood out i don't mean to you know not acknowledge someone else you know right. um, well, i mean you could we could it would take us hours to pick this apart um you know and, and go through more individual components of it and a lot of it is just of course time restraints but yeah. I, I i mean i dig it because again a good a good score can make your little movie sound and feel so much bigger is what you're basically getting at and this yes. is the importance this is the importance of of if you're going to try to take a swing for the fences like nightbreed tries to do to be a bigger movie than than the pants that fit it uh you know the elfman score helps move that along yes you know? absolutely yes. you know the score for jaws moves that along you know this is you know i mean i'm sorry jaws is a b movie like it's it's essentially it is. yeah, yeah. You, you know a b movie that's heightened by a brilliant number of notes mm-hmm. <laughs> basically an iconic number of notes <laughs> i was looking at just the credits real quick um uh, just glancing at them again for nightbreed and you know james robinson and joe roth were producers yeah, on this producers project on this, yeah. and they were huge with warner brothers in the you know in the late 80s 90s um they produced quite a few big hits uh, and Mark Goldblatt was one of the original editors, and Goldblatt is pretty recognizable in the '80s as an editor, um, uh, mostly working with Cameron. But some of the other movies he's cut together: True Lies, Terminator Two, Starship Troopers, the original. Um, and so, you know, a pretty seasoned editor going in, uh, you know, and and making those cuts. I don't know. That's interesting. That would be another person that I would love to sit down with Mark Goldblatt, you know, be like, okay, what happened in the studio? Was the studio really given this pressure or is this just Clive Barker, you know, um, Clive Barker's rhetoric, you know, um, who knows? Um, But, uh, but yeah, quality work, quality technicians, quality artists uh, on this project for sure. Absolutely. Thumbs up on this side as well. Uh, You can get in touch with us a number of ways. You can email us, lonelyphds at gmail.com. You can click on the link to our Discord and our show notes. So that's where we post about various things uh, and talk all about uh, film. And uh, until next time, I'm Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. I'm Dr. Joseph Watson. We'll see you then. <laughs>